Hail and well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So this week, if you couldn't tell from the title of the episode already, I'm going to be talking about William Wallace. For most people like myself who grew up as children of the 90s, because I was born in 85, we remember Braveheart. Huge movie at the time, you know, William Wallace, and he's being played by Mel Gibson, and you can take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom, all of that business. It was a big movie when it came out. So when I had the opportunity to read a book about William Wallace and turn it into a podcast, I thought, you know, I'd like to know more about what really happened. Because even though I love Braveheart, I think it's a very well done movie, especially for the time. Nonetheless, you can't help but think, even as a kid when I was watching it, I remember thinking, how accurate is this? I mean, this is a really cool movie. It's a cool story. But how much of this actually happened? Now, granted, not everyone as a roughly 10-year-old child, because I think Braveheart came out in 95, is going to think that to themselves. But in my particular case, my father is a huge history buff, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. And I also grew up in a house where, you know, watching the History Channel and stuff like that was a pretty regular occurrence. I knew more about the history of the Bible than some of my friends who went to church regularly just because my dad liked to watch History Channel specials. So, you know, that was my childhood. But because of that, I questioned, even as a child, how accurate is this whole Braveheart movie thing? Like, did he really say those things? Did he really do those things? Do we have a good historical record? During my research for this episode, I discovered that Somewhat not surprisingly, considering how long ago it was, we don't have a great historical record. They have been finding more and more as they've done research, more evidence to support what battles he was in or things about his life. But in terms of, you know, hardcore evidence, there's not a whole lot of it. And actually, for about 200 years after his death, there was practically nothing about William Wallace in terms of a written record. There was a lot of oral history. He is, just like in the movie, a big historical figure in Scotland. So, you know, there's folk tales about him and things like that and mythology surrounding his life and what actually happened and how much of it is true, how much of it is exaggerated. You know, that's a little hard to tell because we don't have good written records from back in the 1200s and early 1300s. There's just not a lot, especially in areas such as Scotland, where they weren't necessarily focused on keeping the record as carefully everywhere, or where, you know, there were a lot of fights and a lot of battles between different clans, so records get lost or get destroyed over time, things like that. We do know that William Wallace was born in Scotland, big surprise, in Paisley, in roughly 1270, give or take, somewhere in the 1270s is when he was born. Given what historical knowledge we have of him, we've been able to determine that much at least. He was born to a noble family, but it was a somewhat minor noble family. So he wasn't, you know, in really high standing. His family didn't have tons of land, but they probably had a little bit. 
And, you know, they were probably given deference by some of the people without any nobility at all in their family line, but he wasn't super, super important. And we do know also that his uncle, who was a priest, did make sure that he learned Latin and French. So that part of the Braveheart movie, at least, is accurate. He was taken in by his uncle after his father was killed, and his father was killed by British soldiers, or excuse me, by English soldiers, I should say, because... Scotland is technically part of Great Britain, which British could cover the entire isle. So it's very important to remember that this is England specifically that Scotland was going up against, not the rest of the British Isles, except where the English had conscripted soldiers from some of them. We also don't know a lot about his military experience prior to the Scottish Wars for Independence, We know he had some from somewhere, but exactly where it came from is, at least at the moment, lost to history. In roughly 1291 is when his father was killed, and from there, we also start to see the Scottish nobility sort of falling apart to a certain degree. Not because of his father, but because in 1286, specifically March 19th, 1286, the King of Scotland died. Alexander III was known for being a somewhat weak king. He wasn't a particularly strong leader, but he nonetheless was a leader that the country could be united behind, and he died on his way to go meet up with his new wife. He was an older gentleman, and she was a lot younger. Well, he fell off his horse and ended up passing away. And then on top of that, a lot of his family, so his children and any other heirs in his family, had mostly died off. So his wife was then left behind to try to produce the heir. She was pregnant when he died. But her baby, it's a little unclear, but she either miscarried or the baby was stillborn. Not 100% on that one historically, but either way, there was no heir produced by her. So at that point, they were like, okay, well, we have no one else. We're going to put his granddaughter on the throne. She was three. Margaret was three years old and found herself the Queen of Scotland. But unfortunately, she also died just a few years later in 1290 from an illness. So between then, when Margaret died, and 1296, King Edward of England tried to put a king in place. He basically, you know, put a petition out there. Anyone who wants to be king, come talk to me, kind of sort of thing. And ultimately, they ended up choosing John Balliol, who was by most Scotsmen at the time, considered to be pretty useless as a king. He kowtowed to King Edward of England quite a bit, and he wasn't a very strong leader, just like Alexander III hadn't been that strong. But at least he was Scottish. They could deal with it. They didn't like it, but they were going to deal with it. Then in 1296, the Scottish monarchy fell apart pretty much completely, for a while, because John Balliol had very little, if any, support from most of the other nobles. So at that point, King Edward took him off the throne, and he claimed it for himself. King Edward had no Scottish heritage of any kind. He had no actual legal claim to the throne. He just decided, well, England controls Scotland. That's my throne now. So you can imagine how well that went over with the Scotsman especially, you know, anyone who has seen Braveheart, at least based off what I was reading, it sounds like the portrayal of how proud a lot of the Scottish nobility were is fairly accurate, give or take a little bit. I mean, you know, it's Hollywood, it's theater, who knows. But 
Regardless, King Edward declared himself the king, which a lot of Scotsmen did not care for. One of the things he did in particular that made a lot of Scottish nobility and Scotland in general pretty angry is that he took something called the Stone of Destiny and he took it from Scotland. It was a stone that was traditionally used to crown the Scottish king during the whole ceremony and Edward I, the king of England at the time, took it out of Scotland and took it to England and declared it his. So that didn't go over super well with a lot of people. Unfortunately, though, because England was so powerful and because the nobilities, excuse me, because the noblemen in Scotland, a lot of their clans had been warring for generations and all this kind of stuff. So there wasn't a lot of cohesion, especially with no single ruler to lead them. So ultimately what happened is that roughly 1600 nobles swore their allegiance to Edward, especially after he imprisoned some of the nobles who spoke out against him most vocally. So the ones that had the most influence and were loudest um, antagonists for Edward were imprisoned or executed. So a lot of the other nobility fell into line because they didn't want to have the same fate and end up just like them. There was something called the Ragman's Roll, which a lot of the nobility signed swearing their allegiance to Edward. Notably, William Wallace did not sign it. Now, granted, he was a minor noble, he didn't have a lot of land or anything, but he still didn't sign it. And a lot of historians consider that to be his really first act of defiance against Edward, his first physical, like, actual, I don't like you, I'm rebelling against the English taking over our throne, act of defiance. Somewhat similar to how John Hancock, when we signed the Declaration of Independence over here in America, signed his name really big in the middle. And that was sort of a middle finger to England, if you will, by him signing so large, making sure that they knew exactly who had signed it. Interestingly enough, and complete side note having nothing to do with the rest of this podcast, that is why people say it's your John Hancock when you sign your signature. It's because he was historically known for signing his really big in the middle of the signature section on the Declaration of Independence. Interesting random fact that my brain likes to hold on to. You know, number 2,300 or something ridiculous out of all of the random stuff my brain likes to hold on to. But anyway... During all this time, there were a lot of rebellions from some of the other nobility and a lot of those Scottish people because they were not happy with the idea of a Englishman running their country. It wasn't his, it was theirs. And unfortunately, what that led to is a very vicious attack by King Edward. On March 30th, 1296, King Edward attacked a town called Berwick-upon-Tweed. And Berwick was known for being sort of this mishmash of Scottish and British because it was very close to the border. So at the time, it was more strongly a Scottish stronghold than a British one. And what he did is he marched his army into the town and they slaughtered thousands of innocent people, men, women, children. They didn't really spare anyone. It was a town that had roughly 12,000 people initially. And by the time he and his men left, there was less than 4,000 people left in the town. So that particular action enraged a lot of Scottish people, William Wallace included, and he actually took men and a lot of other rebels and marched with them. It's a little unclear. We don't believe he was the leader, but he did march with them to Hexham in Northumberland, which is a northern part of England, 
and they attacked back. And unfortunately, they did the same thing. A lot of innocent people were killed, which is not ideal, but they were basically doing an eye for an eye sort of situation at the time. And this is also the point where I want to mention that during my research, when I was looking through everything, it's mentioned several times that even though we don't have a lot of information, what we do have has established pretty firmly that William Wallace was a hothead. He had a temper. I know in Braveheart, Mel Gibson played him as very, you know, knowing strategy and being really good at stuff, even though he was led sort of by his emotions also. But at least from what we can tell from the historical record and how violent some of his attacks were, William Wallace was pretty savage. He would leave bloodbaths behind in towns he fought through with his men, even though they didn't necessarily need to kill as many people as they did. Like maybe they could have taken prisoners and they would just kill the English soldiers instead. So very bloody background, very bloody history. He was not a diplomatic fighter. He he was just decimating people as he went. Very savage, although still a big historical figure in Scotland. And unfortunately, during this first portion of the rebellion, the Scotsmen did, really didn't have a solid strategy. They weren't coordinating very well. And um, this was evidenced in several battles, including the Battle of Dunbar, where the Scots lost and a lot of the leaders were taken prisoner at the time. And they just, they kept not having a whole lot of luck. They kept losing battles left and right and having issues with strategy, partly because, again, they weren't cohesively doing things for the most part. Then Edward started taxing the Scotsmen. So in order to have more money for a war he had going on in France, and also because he just wanted to weaken them and do things to them to take more power from them, Edward started levying heavy taxes against the men in Scotland. Then anyone with land, anyone with a solid income, anything like that was getting heavily taxed. So that, of course, made a lot of the Scotsmen even angrier. They were having to pay money for him to go fight his war in France. And he started conscripting Scotsmen to be in his army. So basically, he started drafting them, saying, you're going to fight for me. During all this time, we know that William Wallace was fighting against the British, or excuse me, against the English as a rebel. And we know that he had several motives. One, of course, was his father being killed by English soldiers. That happened when he was a lot younger, so he did have animosity towards them for that. The second potential reason is it's a little questionable. The sources are not 100%, so there are some historians who think this might have been the case, but there's no solid, like, yes, this happened. So he had a family per this one possibility, and in Braveheart, I know he marries a woman in secret and then she gets killed. Well, in history, they think that something similar might have happened. It's unclear whether or not he actually had married her. But there was a woman named Marion Braidfoot. And historians believe that she was likely his wife and that he married her roughly around the same time that he became an outlaw both for fighting in some of the rebellious wars against the English, but also because he had killed a couple of English soldiers when they caught him poaching. Yet another piece of evidence towards his he-had-a-temper history. And so there was a sheriff in this town of Lanark named William Hesselrig. And what historians believe happened is that 
William Wallace was visiting his wife and child. So there's a child involved in this. And while he was there, the law caught up with him. William was able to get away, but Marion was captured and killed by Hesselrig. So in retaliation for this, Wallace returned, probably with a few other people, and killed Hesselrig and his men. So that portion of it is not too dissimilar from what happened in the movie. There's obvious discrepancies, but nonetheless, that's one thing that historians believe may have happened. And this, of course, led him to continue to seek revenge against the English. It also ended up causing him to become more trusted by some of the other Scotsmen because he had so violently and clearly staked his allegiance with Scotland and not with England. And so he joined the rebellion that was still brewing, the official portion of the rebellion, I guess, in 1297. Okay, everyone. So for this week's mid-session break, I'm just going to talk about World Anvil. So I've mentioned it the last couple episodes, I believe, but World Anvil is this great website, worldanvil.com. You can go there and you can world build. It's exactly what it sounds like. You can go there and just create your world, whether it be for your Dungeons and Dragons campaign or whether it's for a book you want to write or even if it's just because you like writing and like being creative and you just feel like having that option and creating something like that. You can do timelines, you can do associations and links between different groups. There's you can do maps. They just added a new map feature. They upgraded it. It's really awesome. There's all these sorts of things you can do, and I definitely recommend you check it out. They are the sponsor for Countless Heroes, which is the Nerdsmith streaming game that we're playing right now. It's five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, Tuesday through Friday, we play from 7 to 11 with a break in the middle, and then on Saturdays, it's from 1 to 5. Same thing. We have a break in the middle. And we, you have access to those on YouTube also if you go to the Nerdsmith YouTube page. But World Anvil is our sponsor for that. And we are so happy to have them because it's an amazing tool. We've been able to start building our world since it's a homebrew campaign. And it's been a lot of fun. So I definitely recommend you check it out. So after killing Hesselrig and his men, who had... Again, historically, we believe, killed William Wallace's wife. He joined up with the rebellion, and from there, the rebellion was able to reclaim a few different cities. And throughout the course of this, Wallace was given a knighthood. So he was Sir William Wallace. It's really hard to say his name, by the way, without trying to put like a Scottish brogue on his name. Sir William Wallace. It just, it feels like you should be saying it like that. It's an awesome name, honestly. But the rebellion had lost a lot of support with a bunch of the nobles, partly because a lot of the nobles were really tired of fighting. They were losing land, they were losing money, both to taxes and to the fighting. And a lot of them just felt like giving up and giving in to Edward because it was so much work and they were tired of the fight. They'd been fighting at this point pretty much since the king had died. So it had been, you know, almost 10 years that they'd been trying to deal with all of this or more, and they were just done. Well, 
They also lost Andrew Moray, who was one of the co-leaders with William Wallace at one point. He died from some wounds from one of the battles they were in, and so they'd lost their leader. A lot of the nobles were losing faith in the whole process, and that wasn't helping either. One thing that did happen after Andrew Moray died is that their decisive battle that he and William Wallace had fought at Stirling Castle, all the success from that basically fell on Wallace's shoulders because Andrew Moray had passed away. So what happened is that on in December of 1297, December 7th of 1297 specifically, they attacked Stirling Castle. Their two forces had come together. Wallace's rebellion group, as well as Moray's, had formed one, and the two of them were leading everything together. Well, Stirling Castle was a pivotal location because it's located, or was located, between England and Scotland. So it was a castle that had a really good tactical position, and whoever held control of it really had a big sort of one-up. They had an advantage over the other because it gave them a good staging point to go into the other country and keep fighting and things like that, or supply lines. So they attacked it. And luckily for them, the Earl of Surrey, who was the one running the castle at the time, greatly underestimated their abilities. He and a man named Hugh de Cressington both felt like the Scotsmen didn't have a chance. The British English forces were so much better. There's no way the Scotsmen could win. So they sent soldiers home and then they employed really poor tactics by making their soldiers funnel across a bridge. At least this is what little historical information we have says the English made their soldiers march across a bridge. So William Wallace and Andrew Moray just had their men stand at the other end of the bridge and pick the soldiers off as they were getting bottlenecked on the bridge. And ultimately, Wallace and Moray were able to take the castle, which was a huge win for Scotland. They did ultimately lose Moray a few weeks later from his wounds, unfortunately. Another thing that was a big win for Scotland was the fact that Hugh de Cressington, who was at the castle with the Earl of Surrey, was one of the big tax collectors for King Edward in England. So King Edward lost one of his main tax collectors in the area, and the Scotsman had one less tax collector to deal with, which is nice. They did say, and this goes back to William Wallace having a very bloody history, some of the historical records or stories say that they actually meted out their own justice, quote unquote, against Hugh de Cressington, and that what they did is they skinned him and diced him. It's a little unclear, I hope, after he had passed away already, but regardless, some of the records say they did that. And there's even a legend that some of his of his skin was used to make a belt and a sheath for William Wallace. That seems a bit extreme to me, even for someone who was known for having a temper. So I'm not sure about that. But, you know, there's there's a legend that says he did that. In April of 1298, Edward had had enough. He was done dealing with this. He wanted the Scotland rebellion to end. He wanted it done. He was trying to fight in France. He was trying to fight in Scotland. He just wanted to completely squash the Scottish rebellion. So he took a force of 25,000 foot soldiers as well as 1,500 cavalry and marched into Scotland and they just started reclaiming land left and right. 
and William Wallace and his forces, they actually waited. They were waiting and watching the British soldiers as they went through the countryside reclaiming areas because they were trying to wait for the soldiers to get exhausted. There was no way that the Scotsmen had enough people. They just didn't. And so they were waiting, hoping the British, the English would become tired enough that they could just take over. Well, unfortunately, even with as long as they waited, it just wasn't enough. There were too many English soldiers. They couldn't compete with the numbers. They couldn't compete with the training. Edward's tactics were very, very good. And William Wallace was not a tactician. So ultimately, it resulted in the Battle of Falkirk, where on July 22nd, 1298, they, the two armies came together, the British great, excuse me, these English greatly outnumbered the Scotsmen by a lot. And so already they were at a disadvantage. Ultimately, they didn't win that battle, the Scotsmen lost. And on top of that, William Wallace fled the field and left his men behind to die. So I know in the movie, he's portrayed as being very strong and powerful, and he stayed there the whole time, and he was very brave. Well, in reality, William Wallace ran away. He fled from the battle in order to save himself. And it was at this point that he took it up on, well, there's, you know, it's hard to say if he took it up on himself or if they were like, no, you're not doing this anymore. But they removed him from the title of Guardian of Scotland, which is what they called the leader of the rebellion. And at that point, a man named Robert the Bruce, also in the Braveheart movie, though not accurately, and a man named John Common, who was less famous but still there, took up the mantles of the Guardians of Scotland and they took over leading. And they were actually much better leaders. They had more tactical minds. They were better at planning those things out and they were more cool-headed so they didn't make rash decisions. But because of everything he had done, the rebellion did shield William Wallace and they actually got him out of the country. He was sent for a while over to Europe. They were trying to have him get support from France. John Balliol had been released from prison by King Edward at some point around this time. And one of the reasons that Scotland, a lot of Scottish people claimed they were going to war with England, besides the obvious reasons that I'd already mentioned, is that they were mad that King Edward had locked up John Balliol, who had technically been the King of Scotland right before all this started. Well, with his freedom in place, John Balliol fled. He went, ended up in France, and he and William Wallace tried to get support from France to help them fight the rebellion against England. Unfortunately, Robert the Bruce, who was one of the new guardians of Scotland, part of the reason he jumped on top of that and took that as a title and took the responsibility is that he was hoping to ultimately end up with the throne himself, which is somewhat similar to Braveheart. And Robert the Bruce wanted to be the King of Scotland, so he didn't want John Balliol or William Wallace to come back to Scotland with French forces because then people would like John Balliol again. So he actually switched sides and ended up supporting Eng England and Edward, along with several of the other nobles who were, again, tired of the war. So the ultimate sort of nail in the coffin was that the Pope also sided with England. The Pope decided that he didn't like the fact that a lot of the Scottish bishops and whatnot were supporting fighting with England. He didn't think that was okay. He ended up supporting Edward as opposed to France or Scotland in all of the fights that were going on. And for the time, a lot of people were very religious. So that was a big deal. That did not help at all. 
that just made people even less willing to help support the rebellion or William Wallace in particular. In 1303, Edward I began to officially retake Scotland. So beyond just reclaiming the lands that the Scottish rebellion had managed to take from England, he started pushing into Scotland and actually took over parts of Scotland physically, as opposed to just declaring himself the king. And then in 1304, Stirling Castle, which was where, you know, William Wallace and Andrew Murray had made their big stand and reclaimed it for the country, and it was a big deal. Well, in 1304, Edward's forces overtook it, and it officially fell back into English control. During all of this time, Edward also had placed a very, very high bounty on William Wallace's head. So, between the fact that William Wallace had fled from battle, he also wasn't in the country when all of these things were happening and it was being taken over by England. And the fact that a lot of people were sick of the war and just wanted it over and Edward was offering a ton of money at the time, what would have been considered a ton of money for William Wallace's head. He didn't have a lot of supporters left. So at this point... He had started coming back to Scotland. He was trying to sneakily kind of work his way around and get more support from people for the rebellion to continue. He had basically decided, even if everyone else isn't going to fight back, I'm going to because I don't want to give up. I'm not okay with having an English king on the Scottish throne. That's not right. You know, all these sorts of things. Well, August 3rd, 1305, he was tricked by someone that he thought was one of his allies, a man named John Monteith. And basically, William Wallace thought that he was going to meet Robert the Bruce and they were going to discuss options for Scotland. So that, again, is somewhat similar to what you see in the Braveheart movie where, you know, I don't feel like this is a spoiler because it's been out for so long. But if you haven't seen Braveheart before, cover yours for a few seconds, um, you know, at the part of Braveheart where Robert the Bruce is all happy and he thinks he's going to be meeting with William Wallace and then his supporters tricked William and it's actually an ambush. Well, to a certain extent that actually happened because William Wallace thought he was meeting with John, or excuse me, with Robert the Bruce and in actuality it was an ambush set up by John Monteith and the English soldiers took him and arrested him and dragged him back to England. Somewhat physically, he was dragged at a few points. He then, in England, again in 1305, had a quote-unquote trial. There really wasn't a trial. Basically, King Edward had decided he was guilty, and that's what was going to happen. But they held a little bit of a trial in Westminster Hall, and he was declared to be a traitor to the crown, even though Edward had no claim to the Scottish crown, as well as just, you know, a whole slew of other crimes against the crown of Scotland is basically what he was being accused of because Edward still was claiming to be the king of Scotland. And at this point, he was stripped and then dragged by horses to Smithfield to be executed. This is parts a little gory. I'm going to try to go through it quickly without a lot of detail, but if you don't want to listen, then I will say goodbye to you now because I'm about to describe how they killed him because it is historical information, but it's not pleasant. They dragged him by horses to the field, so he was drawn by horses quite a ways. And then he was hung on a gallows until he had almost died. So they didn't hang him quickly, said so he snapped his neck. They basically were strangling him to death from the gallows. And then right before he actually died, they cut him down. They removed his manhood as a further show of humiliation. 
and they took out his organs and they burned them in front of his dying eyes. So really, King Edward super, super hated William Wallace and everything he stood for, and he went out of his way to make his death as painful as possible, which is somewhat portrayed in Braveheart. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm really happy they don't show every little piece of what's happening because that would be gross. But they did this, and then Edward cut William Wallace into pieces and sent those pieces to castles in Scotland that he had taken over, such as Perth, for example. And he had them put on display in order to show what happens to traitors to the crown, quote-unquote, and all that kind of thing. Basically to scare people into not wanting to fight against Edward again. So despite the fact that at the time, a lot of Scotsmen were not happy with the fact that he had run from battle and all of that kind of stuff, he basically became a martyr to the cause. So even though it was going to be quite a few years later when the Treaty of Edinburgh would happen in 1328, so 23 years later is when Scotland officially received its independence from England. But during that entire time, even though William Wallace wasn't necessarily the biggest historical figure all over the place, he was still highly regarded by a lot of Scottish people because he never gave up. Even though he was practically on his own at the end and had no support and a lot of the other nobles gave in, he continued to fight. He basically, at least he tried, is basically how they felt. Like, Despite the fact that he had nothing going for him, he tried. He tried to fight back against England, and it was a big deal. So he continued to be talked about. And 200 years after his death, so in the 1500s, a man named Blind Harry the Bard wrote an epic poem about him. Historians now know that the majority of that poem is not super accurate. It's greatly embellished. But he wrote this big historical epic poem about William Wallace and that sort of blew him up into more visibility, I guess you could say, amongst people who pay attention to historical warriors and figures. And and throughout Scotland, there are towns and areas where there's historical record or at least historical mythology, like a legend in the area of William Wallace being present there for some reason or fighting there or living there or what have you. And so there's all sorts of little traditions there was a tree in Glasgow where they claimed is when, where he had been tied up to the, like, basically chained to the tree while they waited for the English soldiers to take him away when he was arrested at the end. You know, all these kinds of things. And it's a big sort of local legends all over the place, basically surrounding William Wallace. And despite the fact that he ultimately wasn't able to free Scotland and only contributed slightly he was a, like I said, he was a martyr. He was basically the symbol of Scottish independence. He never stopped fighting. And he's also sort of, as the author of the book I used quoted, he is the Scottish history's most notorious bad boy. And we all know that a lot of people like reading about the bad boys. You know, Napoleon could be argued very strongly was a bad boy, but everyone knows his name. Everyone has heard at least something about him. Things like that. Julius Caesar, another good example, and one of history's bad boys. They stand out both for their good deeds and for their bad, and none more so than William Wallace. So this episode's already gone a little over what I was hoping to hit. You know, I usually try to aim for 30 minutes. 
So I'm going to end it here. I used a book called William Wallace, The Spirit of a Scottish Martyr. It's by N60 Learning, which is that group that I've used before for a couple of my episodes where they have shorter books that kind of condense the information for you. So it's an easier to read format, basically. I definitely recommend it. It's well written and the information in it's really good. There's a lot of other information that has to do with the history of Scotland versus England that I didn't throw in either because it wasn't necessary to establish things or because it didn't have to do with Wallace himself. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you want to learn more, you can check out that book. And if you want to learn about other things, I have a whole bunch of other episodes if this is your first time tuning in. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign out on this one and I will talk to you guys next week. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Sorry, guys. We got to jump in. I'm sorry. What do you do? What do you mean jump in? You're going to do a wild jump. You're going to kill I us all. I don't have a choice. Oh, I'm no, sorry. this isn't good. You know what happened last time. If we're not. I got to go. Sorry. Oh, hold God. on. Guys, we're taking fire. Just land us near a hospital. Hold on. Like what you hear? This is a small sample of the action and excitement that awaits you every Monday on the Chaotic Goodness Podcast. Download us on your favorite podcast app and join us for space opera, action, adventure, and lots and lots of console cleaning. Let the chaos begin. Now we can be found as part of the Nerdsmith Podcast Network. Find us at nerdsmith.org.